You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 9, the Fort William Henry Massacre and the Rise of William Pitt. Last week, I talked about all the British setbacks in 1756. Sadly, Britain was in for more setbacks and turmoil in 1757. Much of this had to do with the continued political chaos in London, and it also resulted from the lack of a properly supported military strategy for North America. The British military commander of North America, Lord Loudoun, grew increasingly frustrated not only with colonial politics and with his subordinate officers badmouthing him to friends in London, but also because London wanted to second-guess his strategic command decisions. Loudon planned to use his regular forces to reinforce the frontier from Pennsylvania to South Carolina and recapture lost territory. In early 1757, newly appointed Secretary of State William Pitt, who I'm going to discuss in more detail in a few minutes, sent instructions that he should focus on Canada, taking Louisbourg, and proceed up the St. Lawrence River to take Quebec. To help him with this task, Loudon received another 8,000 regulars. In early June 1757, Loudon took 6,000 soldiers to Halifax to besiege the French fort at Louisbourg, along with additional support from the Royal Navy. Although Loudon felt this plan opened up New York and the Middle Colonies to French attack, he was a good enough officer to follow orders. At this point, the frustrated Loudon was probably happy to let the colonies suffer. He was sick and tired of dealing with provincials and their political leaders who wanted to thwart him at every turn. In addition to the ongoing disputes over the quartering of his soldiers, colonists continually refused to provide the necessary men and money needed to fight. His attempts to integrate colonial troops into regular units met with great resistance. At the beginning of the summer of 1757, in an attempt to prevent colonials from trading with the enemy, he had banned all non-military shipping. This led to huge economic disruption, as no colony could get its goods to market or receive imports. By June, the colonial governors were countermanding his orders and permitting civilian trade ships to get back to their commerce. When he left for Canada with General Abercrombie and 6,000 regulars, Loudon was probably happy to leave General Webb in charge of frontier defenses. Webb, despite his own apparent cowardice, still had good friends in London and was one of the officers badmouthing Loudon as a poor commander. Loudon regarded Webb as timid and incompetent, not wrong in my opinion, and with friends in high places in London. Webb would now be responsible for the mess in the Middle Colonies, and when he failed, the colonists would learn the hard way that they needed to defer to a strong military commander with the necessary resources to defend them. Loudon, however, also disappointed the ministry in Canada. Pitt had wanted Loudon to attack the French fort at Louisbourg. When he got there, the French navy at Louisbourg Harbour was too large for the small British fleet to challenge, 
With that, Loudon gave up on Lewisburg and returned his forces to New York. There he returned to the original plan of taking Fort Carillon at Ticonderoga. Even then, Loudon could not catch a break. A hurricane destroyed much of the British fleet on the return trip from Halifax in September. Meanwhile, during the summer of 1757, General Daniel Webb was leading the British forces in New York and attempting to make some progress there. Fort William Henry sat at the southern tip of Lake George in New York, the northernmost fort in a string of British forts. As the fort closest to the British lines, the British planned to use it as a launching point against the French forts at Carillon and saint Frederic, further up the lake. The French commander, Montcalm, thought it could be the next British domino to fall before the advance of the French and Indians. British Major William Eyre commanded the fort during a surprise raid by the French over the winter of 1756. The French had not brought cannon, but had attempted to use the element of surprise to scale the walls and take the fort. The British had beaten off this raid, but not before the French burned all the outbuildings and gunships. As the 1757 fighting season began that spring, the fort remained in a precarious position. The garrison sat in an area surrounded by hostile Indians, meaning the British got little intelligence. Without a ship, they could not even scout from the lake. Their commander had relied on the highly effective Captain Robert Rogers of Rogers Rangers to provide intelligence. The Rangers, however, had already suffered heavy casualties during a scouting expedition, and Rogers himself was convalescing in Albany. This left air with little intelligence on enemy movements. Fort Edward was a few miles away, with reinforcements that could help lift any siege. Otherwise, though, Fort William Henry was a sitting duck. Montcalm prepared for an all-out siege on the fort in the spring of 1757. He had 6,000 regular French troops, along with the necessary siege artillery. Despite his reluctance to use Indians after the Oswego incident, more than 2,000 Indians showed up in the spring to participate in the fighting against the British. Many of them had heard stories of the booty that others had collected in fighting during the year prior, as well as the ransom money that Montcalm had paid to recover the prisoners taken at Fort Oswego. They wanted in on the action. Montcalm could not simply send them home without insulting them, so like it or not, they would be part of the coming campaign. The British were preparing for the summer fighting season as well. Lieutenant Colonel George Monroe brought five companies of regulars and about a thousand militia from New York, New Jersey, and New Hampshire to Fort William Henry. Despite the difficulty with intelligence, by June, Monroe, the new commander, was aware that the French were assembling a force to attack the fort. Monroe sent 500 men in small boats on a raiding party up Lake George to destroy some French sawmills. The men ran smack into the main French force, who killed or captured most of them. When word of the attack on the raiding party reached Fort William Henry, General Webb, who was normally at Fort Edward, happened to be at Fort William Henry on an inspection tour. Webb immediately got out of there and ran back to Fort Edward as fast as he could, promising to send reinforcements. He ordered the regulars to man the fort. The militia would encamp on a nearby hill to prevent the French from mounting cannon there. Now at this point, Monroe had only about 1,100 men fit for duty, facing the 8,000-man French force bearing down on him. After returning to Fort Edward, Webb sent another 200 regulars and 800 militia as a relief force. He had more reinforcements to send, 
but he did not want to send them as that might make Fort Edward vulnerable. He also decided not to lead the relief force himself, but sent Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Fry to take charge instead. Having more than 2,000 defenders at the fort created its own problems. The fort itself was designed to handle about 500 defenders, so most of the defenders had to dig entrenchments outside the fort walls to build a larger defensive line. By early August, Indian snipers were firing on the fort while French began entrenching siege cannon. Monroe sent numerous letters to Webb calling for more reinforcements. Webb received these, but decided to leave Monroe on his own. He was more concerned about the French taking the fort and then advancing on Fort Edward. He refused to send any more of his own troops until he received more reinforcements himself. As a result, it quickly became inevitable that Fort William Henry would fall to the French. Now Monroe engaged in a spirited defense for several days while the French artillery, actually English artillery that the French had captured at Oswego, slowly reduced the walls of Fort William Henry along with the men inside. On August 9th, Monroe asked for terms of surrender. This time, Montcalm thought the British commander had acted nobly. He offered honorable terms, allowing the troops to retain their arms, possessions, colors, and a single cannon. They would be given safe passage back to Fort Edward in exchange for the French prisoners held there. Once again, though, Montcalm's Indian allies were not on board with the plan. They had come to fight for booty and the honors of war. Once the British had turned over their fort and their arms, the British assaulted the hospital, killing and scalping the sick and wounded. Next, they turned on the prisoners, stealing their personal possessions and taking many more prisoner, with the intention of returning home with them as slaves or receiving ransom payment from Montcalm for their return. With more Indians present than the year before at Fort Oswego, the number of atrocities against prisoners increased greatly as well. Some stories at the time said Indians killed more than a thousand defenders. In truth, the number was probably closer to 200. But when the killing started, many prisoners simply ran into the woods, figuring they'd better take their chances doing that than wait to be slaughtered. The Indians chased them down and killed some, but most escaped, and some survivors made it back to Fort Edward with shocking tales of the massacre at Fort William Henry. Montcalm also recaptured several hundred of the prisoners, and this time kept his promise to get them back to Fort Edward. But the tales of the massacre served as a rallying cry for the British, one that would inevitably result in future revenge. In later battles, losing French forces would often be denied the honors of war in retaliation for this massacre. The situation also created a serious breach with the French and their Indian allies. The Indians did not want to fight if they could not raid forts and take prisoners, and the French did not want Indians who would not obey orders. The Indians left the theater to return home, unsure if they would ever return. Many left with prisoners in tow. This turned out to be a terrible mistake, as many of the prisoners turned out to be infected with smallpox. An epidemic spread throughout many of the French-allied tribes, and the number of Indians who died from smallpox as a result dwarfed the number of prisoners killed at the massacre. Without his Indian allies, Montcalm opted not to attack Fort Edward, which he probably could have taken from the trembling web with little effort beyond walking up to the fort and shouting boo. Instead, he burned Fort William Henry and returned to Fort Carillon, taking complete control of Lake George for France. 
Soon, thousands of militia turned up at Fort Edward in response to Webb's calls for reinforcements. They were eager to exact revenge on the French for the massacre, but Webb had no intention of leading a counterassault. He sent most of the militia home, and another year of fighting had brought the British no success as the 1757 fighting season came to an end. Despite the French success in New York, the colonies continued to resist General Loudon's attempts to reorganize colonial defenses. The arguments all remained the same. New England colonies did not want to raise taxes to send troops to defend New York. Colonial soldiers did not want to fight for the low pay being offered. Colonies did not want to pay to house regulars. Colonial officers did not want to take orders from lower-ranking officers in the regular army. Colonial militia did not want to be subject to regular army punishments and discipline. Colonial resistance, though, moved beyond grumbling. After the immediate fear of the Fort William Henry massacre faded, colonists went back to resisting just about everything Loudon wanted them to do. Anti-recruitment riots broke out in several colonies during the fall and early winter of 1757. General Loudon may have thought he caught a break when his former aide, Thomas Pono, became royal governor of Massachusetts. You may recall that Pono had been instrumental in lobbying London to replace General Shirley with General Loudon as commander of North American forces. Pono then returned to America by Loudon's side in the summer of 1756. By early 1757, though, Ponal was back in London, now badmouthing General Loudon and angling for a new job. In August, he became governor of Massachusetts and returned to America. As an astute politician, Ponal quickly realized that the Massachusetts legislature was not going to comply with Loudon's edicts. Seeing how the political winds were blowing, Ponal decided to back the Massachusetts legislature and oppose Loudon. Loudon had hoped to wage a winter campaign against Fort Carillon at Ticonderoga, but with local recruitment failing, he could not get the troops he needed. That, combined with an unusually snowy winter, led to an end to the campaign before it started. Loudon also had to keep some of the militia beyond the terms of their enlistments. For Loudon, this was a military necessity to keep the forts along the New York frontier properly manned. For the militia, who had volunteered only for a few months after the Fort William Henry massacre, extending their enlistments for the rest of the winter, especially when no battle was apparently on the horizon, seemed like a violation of their rights. Eventually, several of the regiments simply marched home in violation of orders. Technically, Loudon could have shot them as deserters, but given that the population supported their decision to leave, it would have been politically impossible. One of those deserters was a 19-year-old private named Rufus Putnam, a name that might become much more important to you as we get into the Revolution. In February 1758, Governor Polnau hosted a conference of New England governors in Boston, without Loudon, to discuss how the colonies could respond to the French threat. Outraged that this conference happened without his approval, Loudon summoned all the colonial representatives to Hartford to lay down the law and informed them what he expected of them for the 1758 fighting season. He gave each colony enlistment quotas, though the colonies made clear that they might not meet them. Tension between Loudon and the colonial leaders was reaching a breaking point. Now, the political chaos in America was probably matched by the political chaos in Britain. 
Back in London, the ministry grew increasingly frustrated with the lack of success in America. Prime Minister Newcastle and Secretary of War Fox had their hands full with an all-out war in Europe. France was threatening the German states, including the King's Hanover. French forces were even building up along the coast, threatening a possible cross-channel invasion of England. The French destroyed a large British fleet in the Mediterranean trying to relieve the British fort at Menorca, which also fell. With nothing to show for their efforts, both Fox and Newcastle had resigned from the government in late 1756. Despite the failures of Fox and Newcastle, there was no obvious alternative to their leadership. William Pitt, a fellow Whig, had been the main voice of opposition. But the king still did not like Pitt very much. Pitt's close relationship with the Prince of Wales remained a sticking point, but more than that, Pitt had continually attacked government policies, regularly savaging Newcastle in the House of Commons. Despite all this, the king decided to give Pitt a chance. By putting Pitt in charge of the war effort, I think the king thought either he will do well and Britain will benefit, or he will fail and we can be rid of this pain in the neck. The king decided to put Pitt in charge of the war, but did not want to make him prime minister. That position went to William Cavendish, the fourth Duke of Devonshire. Don't worry, you won't have to remember that name. Although Devonshire served as prime minister for about a year, he was pretty much a non-entity. Pitt became the real power in his position as Secretary of State for the Southern Department, which covered the American colonies. Not one for modesty, Pitt commented, My lord, I am sure I can save this country, and no one else can. Pitt proposed a massive buildup of both the army and navy, enough to protect Hanover for the king, increase the forces in America, and develop a home army to protect against a potential invasion. But despite all his efforts, Pitt never really found favor with the king. After a few months, in April 1757, the king dismissed Pitt without even finding a replacement. After flailing around for several months of inaction, Pitt and Newcastle were finally able to make nice with one another. The king appointed Newcastle as Lord of the Treasury and Prime Minister again, and Pitt returned as Secretary of the Southern Department in June. Essentially, Newcastle would control the money and Pitt would control war strategy. Fox ended up with the job of Paymaster General, a job with little power, but one that greatly enriched him personally. He seemed happy with that. Fox's patron, the Duke of Cumberland, who is also, remember, the king's son, headed off to Germany to lead an army, planning to come back with greater glory and a restoration of his men to real power. Fortunes of war, however, can be fickle. Facing a superior French force, Cumberland did poorly in Germany. Tasked with defending Hanover for the king, Cumberland was forced to negotiate a surrender that led to his army being disbanded and the surrender of much of Hanover to the French. Upon his return to England, the king remarked, Here is my son, who has ruined me and disgraced himself. Cumberland resigned from all his military and public offices and retired from public life in September 1757. This completely changed the political dynamic in England, giving Pitt much more political capital to fight the war as he saw fit. So although he had been in the ministry for more than a year, it was not until the fall of 1757 that Pitt really had most of the political impediments out of his way to prosecute the war as he wanted. 
So most of 1757 was political chaos in London, with no unified strategy to fight the war, either in America or Europe. By the end of the year, though, Pitt had the necessary political support to make real strategic changes that would turn around England's fortunes of war. And a big part of this was a plan for a renewed emphasis on North America. Next week, William Pitt implements his new plan to win the war and finds a way to work with the colonies. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.